Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, whomever, still working on it. Um, So I want to get a new episode out this past weekend, but I've actually been working on another podcast-related task. I've been wanting to broaden the reach of the show by expanding it to other platforms like Spotify, etc. for some time now. But the only problem is these other platforms in question, uh, for the most part, only accept files in the MP3 format. And about the first 300 episodes of the show, if not more, are in Apple's proprietary M4V format, I think it is. And uh, yeah, back when I first started the show, over a decade now, I can't believe it the way time flies, Apple's iTunes was the, I won't say the only game in town, because I think technically there were other, um, there were other MP3 catchers around or aggregators, whatever the proper term is. But I mean, come on, iTunes was where most people went to get their podcasts and everyone had uh, an iPod, etc., and I figured, hey, why not use their uh, their file format? What could go wrong there? I mean, it's always Apple's always going to be the main player, right? And now that the landscape of podcasting has broadened and changed a bit, a lot of people get their podcasts through Spotify or other platforms. Uh, yeah, and my numbers have dipped over the past few years. And um, I believe in being brutally honest with myself. Some of it might be because my game has kind of slipped, you know. Uh, I may have made some bad uh, choices or gotten a little sloppy as a podcaster. Um, but on but fairness to myself, there's probably other factors too, like Apple's not the only game in town anymore, and there's a lot more people using their competitors. And on top of that, there's just more podcasters. Podcasting has become incredibly popular. And I imagine the more atheist podcasters there are out there, the harder it is to get recognized, you know? So that probably plays a part too. But yeah, I haven't given up on the show. I'll probably do it till, you know, I drop dead whenever that will be. Uh, It's become such a part of my life. But yeah, I do want to keep fighting and pushing and promoting the show. So in order to get the show on other platforms, I've been manually converting all the old episodes of the show to the MP3 format one at a time. I've done about 140 episodes so far. And uh, not only is it really tedious work, but it's also it also kind of stings every time I replace a file because some of those old episodes have accumulated thousands of hits on Podbean, where I host the feed. But when I replace them, that counter goes all the way back to zero, clean slate. So that kind of stinks. Some of the episodes actually had like 9,000 hits or downloads. And as soon as I replace the file, bam. All the way down to a big uh, goose egg, back down to zero again. But I'm hoping it will prove to have been worth it in the end. And a shout out to a listener, Idol Racer, who I interact with uh, a lot on Twitter, uh, because he used to um, say to me, 
hey man, I can't get your po- I can't download your podcast or at least not easily. It's not available in the MP3 format that a lot of these podcatchers use. So, and that actually caused me to switch over to using the MP3 format probably 100 or 200 episodes ago or whenever the heck it was. So a shout out to him because he probably made my job a lot easier. If it wasn't for him, I'd probably have, uh, you know, an extra couple of hundred more files to convert. But enough about that boring tech stuff. So now let's move on to another subject that people might not be interested in. <laughs> I say uh, self-deprecatingly, some people might be interested in it. Every once in a while, I like to talk about pop culture a little bit on the show. I won't spend too much time on it because I realize that there may very well be people who really aren't interested in the topic and they're looking forward to the science and religion-related news story content. But... I did see a couple of things recently that kind of stuck with me or I found really interesting or entertaining. I watched the series premiere of the Last of Us TV series, and like a lot of people, I was just blown away by it. Not only was it one of the best video game adaptations I've seen in a while, it was one of the best TV shows, you know, that I've seen in a while, at least based on this first episode. And I've never played The Last of Us video games, which is probably good in a way, because, um, you know, I don't have anything to compare it to. I find that when I'm unfamiliar with the source material, I'm far less judgmental or nitpicky when going into, you know, watching a television or movie adaptation. But yeah, I absolutely loved it. And... Pedro Pascal is fantastic in it, and I was already a fan of his going in. He was great on Game of Thrones until he got his head squished, and uh, he's great on The Mandalorian, and I love the chemistry that he or his character has with the actress who plays his daughter. Uh, Yes, a great show on a lot of different levels, and there was one particular scene when kind of all hell is finally breaking loose, you know, because it kind of starts out with this bucolic kind of uh, setting where Pedro Pascal is a blue-collar worker. Uh, His brother works with him. He's got his daughter. And then there's the elderly neighbors. They have a relationship, etc. And it kind of takes time to reach that boiling point where the outbreak finally happens. And when it does, there's a sequence where they're trying to flee the city in their truck at night. And it, is, it feels like you're on some kind of thrill ride. It's so visceral and intense. I don't really recall anything exactly like that. It kind of reminds me of one of the, uh, the remakes that was done of one of the George Romero movies. Was it a remake of Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead? The one that takes place in the uh, shopping mall. And at the beginning of the remake, just all sudden all hell breaks loose. And you have the woman trying to flee the suburban neighborhood with just car wrecks and infected people running out of their houses and stuff. But yeah, uh, good stuff. And I'm looking forward to watching all the subsequent episodes. And I'm also a longtime David Cronenberg fan. And uh, if you're not familiar with him, uh, he's been making movies since at least the 70s. Although technically, I think his first film was released in 1969. But his movies definitely aren't for everyone or for the faint of heart. He kind of works within the genre some people refer to as body horror. 
So kind of um, playing with or examining the fears and insecurities we have about the human body, about our own bodies. And then he kind of mixes that with erotica. So kind of reminds me of Clive Barker a bit on that count. And so he has a lot of classic or cult horror or sci-fi films under his belt. Back in the 70s, he made Shivers and Rabid. I remember Rabid starred adult film actress Marilyn Chambers, who I think was famous for, um, was it Behind the Green Door or something like that? Um, And then in the 80s, he made Scanners, Videodrome. Some of you might be familiar with the uh, that scene from Scanners that's kind of become an internet meme of the uh, there's the guy sitting at the news desk and suddenly his head literally explodes. And I'm trying to think if it was Kyle Kalinske. Someone used that. I've used that meme in some of my videos. Uh, it might have been Kyle Kalinske who used that meme and actually got in trouble on YouTube. Um for it. I don't know if he got like uh, some kind of strike or, or something like that. And he also did the film adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone, The Fly, which arguably might be one of his most famous films. Uh, definitely one of his more mainstream films. Uh, but also a lot of body horror in The Fly, if you've ever seen that with uh, Jeff Goldblum. He did uh, Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch. I think he kind of took a lot of artistic license. I'm a fan of uh, a lot of the beat literature authors like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, uh, William S. Burroughs. Naked Lunch is a William S. Burroughs book. And um, Cronenberg turned that into a film. It's pretty wild. And one of my favorite Cronenberg films is Crash, not to be confused with a later film named Crash, which kind of tackled uh, social and racial issues, etc. The Cronenberg film Crash is about a group a group of people who sexually fetishize uh, car crashes, and they intentionally get into car crashes and have sex afterwards or during. It's absolutely crazy. And they did Existence which I liked, but I don't know how well that did. A History of Violence with Viggo Mortensen. And that's another one of his films that kind of broke away from just being a cult classic and achieved a lot of mainstream success. And that brings us to the film that I recently watched, which also stars Viggo Mortensen. And so I was kind of browsing around looking for, you know, some recent releases that might be interesting. And I almost passed on it because I saw the poster art and it was for a film called Crimes of the Future. And I thought that just sounded like a really generic uh, title. My first impression was it's probably some mediocre uh, straight to video sci-fi movie and somehow they got... Viggo Mortensen to star in it, which seems like an actual trend recently where they get big named uh, actors who are maybe, I hate saying it this way because a lot of them are are still very talented actors, but who are maybe viewed as being a little past their prime, like Bruce Willis, etc. And somehow they get, well, somehow money, they get them to star in these kind of lame straight-to-video movies. So I thought maybe it was something like that. But then I found out it was directed by Cronenberg. I'm like, whoa, I'm I'm definitely checking this out. 
And here's a little fun fact. Cronenberg released another movie in 1970, also entitled Crimes of the Future, which I've never seen. But supposedly the two films have nothing to do with each other plot-wise. But this film, the 2022 film entitled Crimes of the Future, is absolutely insane. It's pure Cronenberg. He, he's almost 80 now, and he has not lost his edge at all. If anything, I would say this film might contain some of the most disturbing content I've ever seen in a uh, Cronenberg film. And in fact, there's one scene where I feel like Cronenberg may have finally gone too far, even for me. And so the plot is pretty wacky. It takes place in this dystopian future where humans have evolved to the point where they no longer feel pain and um, are no longer susceptible to infections. And so this is very Cronenbergian. Did I just make up an adjective? Uh, but since people no longer have to worry about infections and they can no longer feel pain, they develop these extreme fetishes, uh, including surgery. Surgery becomes fe uh, sexually fetishized. And so performance artists will have themselves cut open, their organs removed, while crowds of people gather around snapping photos and getting sexually aroused, <laughs> etc. And then, and, you know, and thusly enters Vigo Mortensen. And I don't know what he's doing, but uh, what his diet is or whatever, but he looks pretty damn good. Viggo Mortensen stars in this film, and he's in his 60s now, and he's still very charismatic. He's still handsome looking. So he's this famous performance artist, and uh, he has a female, you know, like an attractive female assistant. I forget her name. I think she's French. And she starred in that controversial film years back entitled uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, I believe. And so they're this kind of performance artist duo. And he has this weird thing where his body is evolving and he develops all these new organs. And in the future, there's this thing called the, um, I think it's called the Org National Organ Registry or something like that. And so there's a law that if you develop a new organ or if you're going to have an organ removed, you need to have it tattooed while it's still in your body. Very strange. And so he'll kind of spontaneously grow these new, they call them neo-organs, and then he'll have them removed in front of a crowd, in front of an audience, and it's sexual for him and his partner who removes the organs, and it's sexual for the crowd. Yeah, very, uh, very crazy, but very kind of typically Cronenbergian once again. And if you're prudish about nudity, I definitely wouldn't watch it. I am not, and uh, I'm very... Uh, I don't want to make myself sound like a perv, but I found that actress I mentioned very attractive, and she has a kind of a prolonged nude scene, which gets a little disturbing because it involves Viggo Mortensen kind of remotely operating on her <laughs> or cutting into her. Very, once again, strange. But I think Cronenberg likes to do that kind of uh, 
turn the viewer on and then disturb them at the same time and kind of mix up that body horror with erotica and maybe even get you to ask, what the hell kind of person am I? You know, is this turning me on or whatever? But where I thought the film may have gone too far is, uh, well, so there's this kind of, I'll call it a subplot, but it ends up tying into the main plot. It becomes a pretty important uh, plot development where it looks like human beings are evolving. <laughs> it's crazy. So that they can eat or digest plastic. And you find that out later on. But you notice during the film that there are some people who have trouble eating conventional food and they even get into these kind of H.R. Giger-esque uh, organic chairs that rock them around and move them while they're eating and attempt to help their digestion. And you find out it's because people are evolving to eat plastics. And I don't know if he's sending a message about how we kind of poison the environment with all our plastic or synthetic waste or whatever, and maybe it would make sense, you know, wouldn't it, there be some kind of poetic justice or whatever that if we eventually evolved to the point where we could eat this crap we're polluting the planet with or whatever. But I'm saying whatever a lot. This is unscripted, so I apologize. Maybe make a drinking game of it. And so where it gets really disturbing and this is a major spoiler, but there's this child. We, he's one of the first characters we see in the movie. And uh, we see him like eating a plastic wastebasket and his mother's just watching him. And uh, yeah, really disturbing plot point. And, but this isn't what ultimately, ultimately I found possibly crossing the line. His mother is just disgusted by him and she ends up killing him. And as if to intentionally wound the father, and the father is played by, I think it's Scott Speedman, who was in the Underworld films with, uh, was it Kate Beckinsale? Is that her name? Uh, one of the many gorgeous women that somehow Pete Davidson managed to reel in. Uh, don't know how he does it. But <laughs> anyway, um, she calls the father and says, that creature you call a son or whatever is dead. You know, you can come get his body. And the father shows up and you can tell he really cares about this kid. And he's just devastated and heartbroken. He's sobbing. And so it turned, once again, major spoiler alert. It turns out that this kid is one of possibly the first person to be naturally born with the ability to digest plastic is crazy once again as it sounds and at first you think his father is just this total degenerate like his father follows Vigo Mortensen's character around and he tries to convince Vigo Mortensen to perform a public autopsy on his son's body and you're like oh this is this guy is just this weird scummy you know degenerate or whatever but it turns out the reason why he wants it done is because he believes that this is the next step in human evolution and he wants people to see what his son was born like and what the future holds you know and so the film keeps building up to that it's going to climax with this kid's autopsy, which is a very disturbing idea. 
And I figured it wouldn't be a big deal that they'd kind of shoot around it in a certain way where it wasn't too shocking. But where I thought things may have gone over the line is, and I think they use CGI, but they basically show the kids completely, uh, the, the kids' nude corpse being operated on uh, remotely. And I thought it just really disturbed me. It was too much even for me, and maybe that's what Cronenberg wanted, but I thought they could have strategically shot it in a way where you don't see the kid's body like that or something. So, yeah, that's where I thought it was, um, I thought it was too much. And so after telling you about that, I mean, I feel weird saying I still thought it was a good film, and it really left an impact on me, and it stayed with me enough that I thought I'd discuss it on the show. But that one part really did disturb me. And not like, usually when Cronenberg films disturb me, it's uh, in a way where I enjoy being disturbed. I enjoy being unsettled, or I like the fact that he kind of crossed a line in kind of a sick yet fun way. But this disturbed me in an unfun way, in, in a... In a way, I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know if they should have gone, you know, gone that far. But I've gone this far, so I might as well spoil the ending. Uh, you can always skip ahead if you plan on watching this disturbing film I just <laughs> described in detail. But throughout the movie, you see people eating, including the kid's father, eating these candy bars. And I thought they were just candy bars, but turns out, they're made of plastic, and there was almost like, and the father was the leader of it, this cult of people who surgically had their bodies uh, altered to be able to digest plastic, and so they eat these purple plastic candy bars. And so the film ends with Viggo Mortensen's character in one of those chairs to try to help him digest normal food, and he's having a really hard time with it. And so he and his assistant are both like, it's finally time. And she hands him one of the plastic candy bars and he takes a bite of it. And all of a sudden, it's, I think it go, might go black and white, but he's just looking up and it looks like he's just experiencing this profound pleasure or relief. And it's even like his eyes are tearing up. And so I think the film is leaving on the message that people really are evolving to the point where the next natural step in evolution is going to be to eat plastics. And once again, I think maybe Cronenberg is sending a message about pollution and waste and what that's going to mean for the future, etc. But I liked the way the film ended. I, I thought that was kind of a cool ending. And did I characteristically break one of my promises? Didn't I say I wasn't going to spend that much time on pop culture? Maybe I'll end this segment by mentioning how supposedly Cronenberg identifies as an atheist. You know, this is kind of funny, and yes, it's from Wikipedia. In a September 2013 interview, Cronenberg revealed that Roman Catholic film director Martin Scorsese admitted to him that he was intrigued by Cronenberg's early work, but was subsequently quote-unquote terrified to meet him in person. 
Cronenberg responded to Scorsese, you're the guy that made Taxi Driver and you're afraid to meet me? In the same interview, Cronenberg identified as an atheist. And here's a quote. Anytime I've tried to imagine squeezing myself into the box of any particular religion, I find it claustrophobic and oppressive. Cronenberg elaborated, I think atheism is an acceptance of what is real. In the same interview, Cronenberg revealed that it depends on the quote-unquote time of day as to whether or not he is afraid of death. He further stated that he is not concerned about posthumous representations of his film work. It wouldn't disturb me to think that my work would just sink beneath the waves without trace, and that would be it. So what? It doesn't bother me. And I can see religious types going, see, that's why his movies are so sick and twisted. No good atheist ain't got no moral compass. I like how I automatically go to that half-assed southern accent whenever I'm trying to uh, lampoon uh, religious zealots or whatever. Me with my accent, with this ridiculous uh, Boston accent. Anyway, enough of this. Let's move on to the news stories. So I recently came across an Only Sky article that discusses the supposed continuing decline of Christianity in the U.S. But instead of just reading the article for you guys, I'm going to jump to some of the sources it cites. So firstly, we have a study from the Pew Research Center, and it's dated September of last year, which makes it sound like it's a long time ago until you remember that we're still only in January, and September was only, you know, several months ago. And so it's entitled Modeling the Future of Religion in America, and the subheading reads, If recent trends in religious switching continue, Christians could make up less than half of the U.S. population within a few decades. Since the 1990s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or quote-unquote, nothing in particular. This accelerating trend is reshaping the U.S. religious landscape, leading many people to wonder what the future of religion in America might look like. What if Christians keep leaving religion at the same rate observed in recent years? What if the pace of religious switching continues to accelerate? What, this is a lot of questions. What if switching were to stop, but other demographic trends, such as migration, births, and deaths, were to continue at current rates? To help answer such questions, Pew Research Center has modeled several hypothetical scenarios describing how the U.S. religious landscape might change over the next half century. The center estimates that in 2020, about 64% of Americans, including children, were Christian. People who are religiously unaffiliated, sometimes called religious nuns, and of course that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N, accounted for 30% of the U.S. population. Adherents of all other religions, including Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, totaled about 6%. Depending on whether religious switching continues at recent rates, speeds up or stops entirely, the projections show Christians of all ages shrinking from 64% to between a little more than half, 
54% and just above one-third, 35% of all Americans by 2070. Over the same period, quote-unquote nuns would rise from the current 30% to somewhere between 34 and 52% of the U.S. population. 2070, I wonder if I'll still be around. Maybe if I keep taking my uh, resveratrol and anti-aging supplements. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I think that projection makes sense. So depending on which hypothetical model or trend you're going with, it could be anywhere from 54% to just above one-third. And yeah, if you take into consideration factors like This has traditionally been a predominantly Christian nation, but people tend to be moving away from religion or Christianity. And then with um, immigration trends, you have other faiths kind of being incorporated or integrated into the population at large, added into the melting pot, so to speak. It makes sense that Christianity, um, the percentage of active or self-identifying Christians could fall that low by that point. Could very well be a good thing as long as people are moving away from a spirit of superstition and religious intolerance and towards a kind of spirit of of humanism and uh, secularism in the best possible sense of the word. Let's move towards that Star Trek-esque utopia that I've often mentioned on the show, at least in the early days. I've, I've kind of lost some of my faith in humanity along the way, but I'm still hoping. And then that Only Sky article also mentions a website or some kind of think tank or organization called the State of Theology, and it's actually a Christian organization that does, uh, polls or studies. And so I go to their page and it says, what do Americans believe about God, salvation, ethics, and the Bible? Legionnaire, I think it is, Ministries and Lifeway Research partnered to find out. Every two years, we take the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. Read some of our key findings from 2022 below and explore the data for yourself. And this first one just really tickles me for some reason. Um, And it's entitled, Does God Change? Did I say, uh, like, really East Coast accent? God. Does God change? As we look at ourselves and at the world, it is clear that human beings, along with the rest of creation, undergo frequent changes. But does this principle of change apply to God as well? The Bible affirms the truth that the triune God is both omniscient, meaning that he knows all things, and immutable, meaning that he cannot and does not change. Despite this truth, the majority of adults in the United States believe that God both learns and adapts to different circumstances. And for some reason, that just makes me picture God like some kind of test subject, like a chimp with a wired helmet and playing with blocks. (laughs) God adapts. uh, God both learns and adapts to different circumstances. 
Despite the clear teaching of Scripture, this year's survey reveals that approximately half of evangelicals believe that God learns and adapts to various situations, meaning that they believe that God does change. Yeah, I'm not even a believer, but that seems weird to me. But maybe uh, it's for the best because maybe they believe that uh, God, you know, changes and softens on some of the <laughs> uglier bits of the Bible, like um, uh, the killing of homosexuals and, and that kind of thing. Then there's another section, the Bible. U.S. adults increasingly reject the divine authorship of the Bible, relegating it to the same category as other religious writings in purportedly sacred texts. Yeah, which is right. I don't think the Bible has any more validity than the Bhagavad Gita or uh, various Buddhist sacred texts or uh, anything else. They're all man-made, and the Bible is a cobbled-together anthology of different books by different authors uh, with um, redundant stories at points and contradictions, etc. This view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or broader cultural values. Yeah, I think that probably describes most moderate uh, Christians, that it's that kind of cafeteria Catholic approach, which is kind of, you know, hypocritical or intellectually dishonest in a way, I think. But I'd rather have people taking that moderate approach than believing in the entire Bible, literally, including those ugly bits I mentioned where it talks about things like killing homosexuals, uh, men lying with other men, or killing adulterers, or, you know, killing people for picking up uh, sticks on the Sabbath or whatever it is. And so this next story really caught my attention and it's been all over the place in the news, but I'm going to read uh, this site called Futurism.com's article about it, just because I thought the wording was kind of funny. But before I begin, just to give you some context, there's this neuroscientist or neuroanatomist who recently published a paper about how she believes that certain kinds of dinosaurs may have been at least as intelligent as primates, which is kind of mind-blowing. And I think the way she came to that conclusion is by looking at extant birds, living birds, and uh, how how big their brains are, how many neurons they have, and then from there trying to extrapolate based on a specific dinosaur's anatomy how big their brains may have been or how many neurons they may have had. And so it's a fairly controversial opinion, I guess. So keep that in mind going in. And so the article is dated January 10th and it's by Frank Landemore. And it's entitled, In Terrifying News, Big Brain T-Rex May Have Been As Smart As Primates. That's uh, scary. 
And so if I jump a bit down, the heading says Clever Girl, which I think is a nod to Jurassic Park, right? The Tyrannosaurus Rex was the apex of all apex predators in its heyday over 65 million years ago, known more in pop culture for its ferocity than its smarts. But according to a new study, we may have been underestimating how intelligent these towering tyrants were this whole time. A lot of alliteration there. And then it continues. In fact, compared to the intelligence of their peers, the T-Rex and other theropods, three-clawed bipedal dinosaurs, may have been the, in quotes, primates of their time. Said neuroscientist Susanna Herculano Huzel, I think it is, author of the study published in the Journal of Comparative Neurology in a video about her research. According to her findings, theropods had as many neurons in their brains as monkeys do today, with the T-Rex boasting quote-unquote baboon-like numbers of up to 3 billion neurons. That's a pretty scary level of intelligence for a killing machine the size of a house. With that many neurons, a T-Rex wouldn't have just possessed uncanny cognition. It also might have lived longer, up to 40 years, Herculano Huzel estimates. That's enough time and smarts to potentially be a social creature with its own culture like primates and whales, and also suggests they may have worked together too. The ability to use tools is even on the table, though with their infamously stubby arms, that seems less likely. And I know the idea of dinosaurs using tools sounds absolutely ridiculous. I'm imagining what they mean is really rudimentary quote-unquote tool use. Like, I think there's some birds that will say, grab an oyster or something like that and bang it off a rock to open it. So they probably mean something like that, you know? I think some of the smartest birds alive are the corvids, the crow family. I think ravens are supposed to be really smart. Yeah, I'm looking at one article from science.org. Oh, and this is actually crows. Without any training, 78% spontaneously picked up sticks placed in their enclosures and used them to extract food from crevices in pieces of wood. And that actually reminds me of chimps. You know, chimps are said to use tool use as well. Chimps will supposedly take a stick or twig and stick it into an anthole or termite mound, and then they'll pull it out and eat the insects off of the stick. But the article actually uh, has a tweet from the scientist in question, Susanna Herculano Huzel, I think Huzel, I don't know, hopefully I'm not butchering it. And it says, it's officially news, T-Rex had baboon-like numbers of brain neurons, which means it had what it takes to build tools, solve problems, and live up to 40 years, enough to build a culture, exclamation mark. And that tweet is dated January 5th, by the way. And then uh, down lower, it gets into, once again, how she calculated this, supposedly. Um, so the heading says, bird-brained. Without any theropod brains lying around, soft tissues like gray matter are rarely fossilized. Determining an accurate neuron count of an extinct animal relies on the brains of its modern descendants, birds. 
And here's a quote, if you can figure out how many neurons go into a bird brain of a certain size, and you can figure out what size was the brain of different bird-like dinosaurs, Herculano Huzel explained, then you can do the math and estimate how many neurons a dinosaur brain had. That math is relatively simple. Instead, the difficulty lied in establishing that the brain size proportionality in birds also applied to dinosaurs, and then in quotes, which is what I just did, she declared. <laughs> but as an essential tenet of her work, Herculano Huzel maintains that theropods must be treated as a discrete group with its own distinct traits rather than thinking of dinosaurs as a homogenous whole. From that assumption, Herculano Huzel, take a drink, realized that theropods in particular had a similar correlation between body mass and brain size to pre-impact birds or basal birds. From there, she used the neuron count of modern birds, like emus and ostriches, and applied the same rules of scaling to figure out how many neurons theropods like T-Rex may have had. It's a huge revelation if it holds up, and it makes you marvel at how drastically our understanding of ancient life continues to shift. But I thought that was a really interesting story, and um, I think if it's true, I think it both makes... Uh, Theropod dinosaurs, especially T-Rex, seem that much more scary, but also kind of makes them more sympathetic in a way, too, to think that they may have been that intelligent and makes you glad that you weren't, that, you know, you didn't um, exist at the same time as them. It definitely makes the portrayal of, say, uh, velociraptors, etc. in Jurassic Park seem more plausible. But with that being said, I guess I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily and uh, keep me from sliding into destitution, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash doubt and supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. <laughs>